This is Things That Really Matter, a podcast by global multidisciplinary engineers Kundal that is dedicated to creating new and innovative solutions for the built environment and driving the agenda towards a more sustainable future. Join us as we discuss the challenges and changes that affect the built environment around the world with the brightest minds in our industry. Welcome to our World Green Building 2023 webinar on reimagining a climate resilient built environment. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the First Nations peoples of Australia, traditional custodians of the lands from which we are all joining the call today, and recognise their stories and traditions, their cultural heritage and beliefs, and their deep and enduring relationship to land, water, sky, and winds. First Nations people have been managing land and sea and the effects of climate variability through a wide variety of practices for more than 60,000 years and play an integral part in informing our collective response to a climate resilient built environment. I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and future and extend that respect to any First Nations people of Australia joining the call today. My name is Hannah Morton, Associate Director of Sustainability in Cundall's Sydney office. Cundall is a global multidisciplinary engineering firm working to drive better and more sustainable outcomes in the built environment. We've recently made public our commitment to zero carbon design 2030, which means from that year onwards, we will not be working on any projects that are not net that are not zero carbon designed projects. And we're already collaborating with our clients and industry to achieve this target. Despite an increasing demand for sustainability and actions already being taken, it is clear that more needs to be done to protect our cities, societies and ecosystems from the changes we've actually been seeing for quite some time now. Obviously, it's all over the media now, but we have here an article from 1912 already talking about the impact of climate change um, and evidence of scientific articles being written almost 140 years ago on this topic. So it's pretty clear um, that now is the time to act and I think we all understand the challenge. The latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report signals that adaptation has now become urgent. Current emissions mitigation is insufficient to prevent us from exceeding the global average of 1.5 degrees. In fact, that was already exceeded in the last two months on average. And on our current trajectory by 2040, it's predicted that parts of Australia may be experiencing more than 100 days per year over 40 degrees. So while we need to focus a lot of effort on climate change mitigation, it's now become clear that adaptation is urgent. And especially for those communities with a high proportion of more vulnerable people uh, who may be less equipped to deal with these changes. So on that note, I have the great pleasure of introducing our distinguished panel for today's session. Professor Cheryl Detcher from Griffith University, Phil Rasso, Sustainability Lead at the City of Perth, Jamie Nelson, Head of Development Office, the GPT Group, Madeline Yanish, ESG Lead Asia Pac at Cundall, and Julian Sutherland, Design Director and Partner at Cundall. I'd like to now move into our panel discussion. And just to get started, 
I would invite each of our panel members to tell us a bit about their relationship to the topic of resilience. And if you had to give an elevator pitch to someone on why we need to reimagine the built environment to improve resilience, what would you say? So maybe, um, Jamie, shall we start with you? Sure. Um, yeah, planning for a resilient society and with resilient infrastructure is really important. Now, well, it's obviously, as I said there, it's really critical these days. As uh, the head of development at GPT, my relationship with resilience comes with, from being a developer and a creator of community infrastructure that needs to be, uh, needs and remains to be usable, uh, viable and sustainable long-term. And really largely, I guess, market leaders, especially in the property industry, need to, need to lead. Um, so we need to create assets that are sustainable and unbreakable, ideally, that address both chronic and acute shocks and, uh, and create built environments that are able to be continually um, used and adaptable for our society. Thanks very much. Cheryl, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Cheryl Desha. I, uh, my day job is at Griffith University, where I uh, am part of the leadership team for the Disaster Management Network here. Actually, I trained as an environmental engineer, and my elevator pitch involves realising for myself that uh, research with impact is essential in shifting our uh, built environment agenda to one that is resilient for whatever the planet holds in store for us. The last six years I've spent my uh, my career pivoting to the disaster management agenda, realising that the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are more important than ever. And we have a lot of potholes, literally landslides, climate change, sea level rise in the way. So as we hold on to that horizon goal of achieving the UN SDGs, we really do have to deal very powerfully with the disasters that are in front of us and around us at the moment. So my uh, my career goal is to have research that's useful, usable and used in creating that resilient built environment for humanity and the other critters and species that are there alongside us. Thanks, Cheryl. Phil? Hi, uh, Phil Rasso from uh, City of Perth. Uh, I've come from an academic background uh, as well. So I've got a bit of theoretical, uh, I had a theoretical introduction to the concept of resilience um, coming from, from that ecology background from Hollings, which says systems will um, be impacted they'll change, they'll achieve some stability, then they'll get impacted again and go through this cycle. But what I've sort of been noticing is that as humans, um, rather resistant to uh, being adaptive to change, change happens anyway, but we don't really want to adapt to it. And so we design and build things that will last no matter what. And that includes things like um, the systems that govern our lives, like capitalism and politics and patriarchies and inequality and, and those sorts of things. So um, even though those things don't really serve our long-term interests, we've built resilience into them so that we know we need to change them, uh, but we just can't because they're so resilient to change. So what I'm interested in is not just how to make systems more resilient, and more adaptive, but also how we break the resilience of the systems that we actually need to change. Thank you. Madeline? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm Madeleine Janesch. I'm working for Kandel. I'm um, I'm leading our ESG team. So uh, resilience, climate change, climate action is, is a big topic for us. Um, as Hannah already said in the introduction, um, but my background is is in architecture. So um, I. I turned into the role at Candle about five years ago, but before I was an architect. And I guess that goes together with a lifelong fascination for the built environment and really appreciating how buildings are on one hand a shelter and um, that supply us with basic needs, things like electricity and water and the shelter aspect, but also how important they are for our health and well-being and for happiness and having a home. Um, so, I mean, in Australia, we spend about 90% of our time in buildings. I'm sure pretty much probably everyone in this arena is in a building right now. So it's so, so important for our society as we, we are today that the built environment works for us and protects us, but also makes sure we are, we are healthy and we are, we are happy. And that builds that mental resilience and societal resilience. Thanks, Madeline. And Julian? Oh, I'm, I'm a building designer and engineer. I've, I've designed buildings in lots of places around the world in different climates, different cultures, um, with different briefs and different requirements and different types of buildings. And so I guess I come at it from uh, a sort of design and briefing perspective. You know, I, I work both in design side, but also client side, helping clients write the brief that is the question that we will then respond to to produce an asset or a master plan or a building or whatever it is. And what's really important in that process is to understand what that brief's going to manifest itself as and, you know, what's that brief based on and what are those criteria that we're using to develop these designs. And I think some of those criteria are older than me. They were developed many, many, many years ago. And the world is such a different place in the last three years, let alone the last 50 odd years. So I think it's really important that we keep reminding ourselves and asking ourselves, are these criteria correct? Do they need to be updated? We clearly need to change them for a whole host of different things. I mean, temperature is the obvious one, but I think there's a lot of other parameters and things that we need to think about when we're really um, developing these projects um, and, and therefore the considerations and impacts and benefits that they have. It's much more than than just an engineering and design and uh, exercise. It's, 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 it's fascinating actually how much we need to think more clearly about all of those aspects and how those, those briefs become performance criteria, become projects. And, and that's what I'm interested in. Thanks very much, Julian. So I think the sustainability industry has adopted many simple position statements. And I'm wondering, has keeping the messaging simple served us well enough or do we need to accept complexity and engage with it better? I think the the simple statements are really helpful because it allows us to understand what to do today in a very complex world. Um, I think somebody needs to also be thinking about the complexity of it and the interactions of it and making sure that those simple statements are the right thing to be taking action on and have the right priority. Um, but I think I think it's I think it's important because there's so much uh, in that in this whole kind of space resilience, climate change. It's very very busy. There's a lot of interconnected elements. Um, I'm a big fan of having some simplicity in there because uh, it gives it just just allows us to all move in a similar direction. Hopefully, making some good progress. 
I just I agree, Julian. I just wanted to say that um, there's um, there's so many different layers of uh, of, of knowledge as well, and and I think mm-hmm. um, given the um, importance of having so many aspects of the supply chain, as well as customers, you know, all to some degree on the same journey, uh, it's important. So I think with um, if it's too complex, it's much harder for that um, message to be clear and and really grabbed hold of. Thanks, Jamie. Um, so I guess, you know, the next few questions are a little bit around social social value. And we've had this progression of ideas from triple bottom line to CSR and now ESG, environment, social and governance. And I suppose what I've seen is that the E and the G um, seem to dominate the ESG conversation and not so much the S, um, the social side of things. Does it require more than talking about diversity and inclusion for ESG to deliver genuine benefit um, for community resilience? Madeline, do you want to start with this one? Oh, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think absolutely. So um, I think, and we can see this from two sides. So one of in from the impact side and the other from the, the action sort of side. So from the impact side, the I think the IPCC made very clear in their last report that especially women and um, other um, groups are extremely vulnerable to climate change on a global scale. So typically women are more affected by climate change and it impacts them the most. And also they are usually the ones who then decide to have, for example, in some areas in the world, to have less children or to have to displace their families to protect them. And it's usually women who lead that. So there's a big impact. And I think that can be extended as well to, for example, indigenous groups who traditionally uh, have this very close connection and are very in tune with the environment over tens of thousands of years. And when it's changing so rapidly, they become very vulnerable to to those impacts of climate change. So I think from that perspective, it's really important to talk about diversity and inclusion. But also then on the other side, um, we probably are where we are today because we didn't have enough inclusion in, in the debates and in the actions we've seen so far. So I think opening up that discussion and opening up um, boards, opening up um, political agendas and hearing more voices from different groups, uh, especially those who are so vulnerable, is really key in my view. Yeah, thanks, Madeline. I, I hear you on the Indigenous engagement and I think, gosh, of all the years in Australia, to be able to focus in on Indigenous voice. We have the most extraordinary statement in the Uluru Statement. And I'm speaking as an engineer who's hardwired for, you know, decision support flow workflows. When I look at the Uluru Statement and I see the word makarata, this is a word that speaks to the coming together after a struggle. And for me in the disaster management agenda and thinking about climate change and what we have spewed into the atmosphere with our greenhouse gas emissions, we have a very existential, real struggle with planet and we're coming together after that struggle with planet. 
So even thinking about what the Uluru Statement throws up for us as the ability to interact with other human beings who have long knowledge of space and place and how to deal with adversity and what the Makarata and the Uluru Statement's about, which is that fair and truthful relationship between people and planet and people and people. What an, what an amazing opportunity to bring that forward into resilience for our built environment. So that extends for me past the S, Hannah. That's about this, the social prompt, but actually, or and actually the Indigenous long view wisdom is very much about science. It's very much about environment. It's very much around governance. So it is a, it is a great pivot point to wrap around um, the holistic um, context for what, what ESG brings up for us. Yeah, I, I agree. And I've been looking at this broader failure of the, the S in ESG. And um, sometimes I tell a story about John Elkington, uh, who was the business writer who coined the term triple bottom line back in um, 1994. And um, so the triple bottom line was people, planet and profit or social, environmental, economic, ESG. And most people would have seen at some point a Venn diagram with with three circles and the with each of those things in it. And the overlapping bit in the middle was sustainability. But um, Elkington actually said the triple bottom line was meant to provoke a deeper thinking about capitalism and, and the future and the future of capitalism. But um, 25 years after he coined the term but in 2019, he actually announced a recall on that concept and he said it, it, it just failed. Like companies and people couldn't see that sweet spot of where everything interacted, um, let alone question the basis for capitalism. But um, so profit now we all know profit is is king and nothing happens unless there's a, a financial business case for it and the social and and the environmental as well they become externalities they're just someone else's cost um and if you read any company report or a uh, sustainability report or esg report you'll still see those three things being uh, addressed separately and the social side might be some um, donation to a footy club or a, an arts group or something, probably in a regional area. And companies are still failing to see how the social and environmental impacts are not just what they do, but it goes down to the core of their business models and their products and their decisions. So, um, yeah. And, and I think it also goes back to that simple messaging we said before. Simple messaging is really important, but we really have to learn to think in systems, not in silos, not environmental social governance. It's the system is all connected, especially in resilience. We can build super duper um, HVAC systems to counter um, more heat but we really need to look at what happens to the people inside, where do they come from, what's their um, um, social background, et cetera. It's, it's, it's connected. You can't look at it separately. So, Yeah, just, just on that, I think um, at GPT, certainly it's a critical thing to what we do. And I think the point about it being embedded, it's an engagement that actually goes right through the process that from, from you know, all aspects. So I think there's a lot of... Um, I guess in the past, maybe tokenism around, um, you know, artworks in Indigenous sort of response and things like that. But I think what um, we have certainly tried to do, not saying that we've got it all right yet, but we've tried to embed it in all 
parts of our processes. We look at well-being for design, obviously, um, but we also look at modern slavery practices, et cetera, across the whole supply chain. We look at um, meaningful engagement with the Indigenous community, but also the other aspects of the communities in which we're doing buildings as well or creating assets. And that goes right through all phases um, so that, yes, you do have it very implicitly in the fabric of the built environment, I think on one end, but it's also about how engaged various layers are I think the long-term impact of that is also to have an impact on, especially on the Indigenous side, on their businesses and their supply chains that go beyond our typical, um, our typical kind of work frame works that we that we normally do. Thanks, Jamie, and everyone. Um, so, what about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? How do we think they're going in terms of driving meaningful change in resilience? <laughs> Happy to kick this one off to start with, Please. Hannah. I think uh, it would be wonderful if um, we could take the UN SDGs, which are aspirational by nature. They're, you know, a hundred and something countries around the planet committing to alignment of ideals around where humanity should be. Yeah. So the goals there are 17, but there's um, 269, I think, um, indicators sitting inside 167 targets there. So as built environment professionals, we love metrics. We love, we love, you know, monitoring and measuring. There's a bunch of stuff in there for built environment professionals to be able to align um, work to, to be in an um, appropriate direction on change. I think the complementary document that has to sit hand in hand as we face adversity here in, in looking to the UN SDGs is the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction. And that's an absolute, another brilliant document because it gives us four priorities and seven targets to go for. There's things to increase and things to reduce. So certainly the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction sits together with the UN SDGs and coupled they're very powerful in ensuring that multinational corporates and uh, governments around planet can be aligned. Uh, I'm a bit biased, though, so I'll leave it to the rest of the panel. What do you think? <laughs> I, I agree, Cheryl. Um, I'm a huge fanboy of the SDGs. I think um, I think they're the greatest achievement of humanity this century. Um, and the reason I think that is because there was 195-ish countries that all agreed on something and that something was the blueprint for our, our own survival, literally a strategy for the survival of humans. Um, and I don't think that should go underestimated or, or uncelebrated. Um, even though we're sort of almost halfway through and things aren't tracking as well as, as we all hoped, um, I think the SDGs still are there as a, a way to holistically address sustainability um, even though at this stage, people tend to pick and choose the SDGs they want to address, sort of like choosing from a menu, rather than realising um, how all the goals are interrelated and interdependent and indivisible as, as they were designed to be. So there's real genius behind it. Um, getting back to that complexity issue, it's it's being able to complain, uh, convey some of that complexity that is the challenge. No, I, I mean, I, I agree as well. I, I, I really like the SDGs and I, I've used them a, a number of times now with clients to set sustainability strategies. And, you know, it's a bit complicated discussion, sustainability, but when you use those SDGs as the sort of content 
for a conversation with a client about their organisation, their event, their building, their project, their whatever it might be, somehow it brings everyone together, keeps the conversation focused, tackles all the key issues that they want to talk about. And I found them you know, more useful, well, most useful in terms of holding that conversation together and really getting people to engage with the subject in a way that they were struggling to previously and 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 really kind of think quite holistically across a, uh, whatever it is you're trying to kind of use a strategy for. So so I think they're great. They're somehow they really do galvanise the, the issues in people's minds and they somehow allow people to free themselves up to really openly discuss these issues for an organisation. So I think they're great. Thanks, Julian. So we currently have growing numbers of unhoused persons and growing energy poverty, particularly amongst renters, which potentially puts lives at risk from acute shocks and chronic stresses that we're starting to see more and more of. How can we ensure members of the community that fall into lower socioeconomic brackets can address basic needs and are not left stranded during those shocks and stresses? And is the financialization of fundamental human needs such as housing and drinking water compatible with resilience? Isn't it interesting? I, as an engineer, I love solutions that uh, enable human beings to be comfortable and have quality of life while also removing their choice. <laughs> because whenever we deal with choice and human beings, we end up with, you know, Daniel Kahneman's, um, uh, he talks about it a lot. Uh, he's the first non-economist to win a Nobel Peace Prize for econ economics and brilliant behaviour change uh, uh, writing. The Nudge is this bright fluorescent yellow book with an elephant on the front if you're interested. Key point being that uh, we have an overwhelming amount of choice in our public um, space at the moment. And unfortunately, the, the choice is about bad, less bad, or really bad, with not much opportunity to choose into things that are actually improving quality of life for, um, for communities around the country. Uh, just last week on Thursday, um, the Natural Hazards Research Australia and Suncorp hosted a, a breakfast session on assisted relocations and what that actually means for the insurance sector, and what it means for the economy in um, enabling human beings to, in advance of being in harm's way or in recent experience of being in harm's way, actually get out of the way. And that involves such a, a menu of well, overwhelming menu of choice for communities and individuals. And that's just one example in terms of physical risk to self and to community. Uh, it's super challenging and yet um, it has a home in terms of responsibility for built environment professionals. I think as we... Um, I hold my badge of being a chartered engineer. I'm an academic chartered engineer uh, with pride, but that carries with it some pretty significant responsibility in designing well and not in harm's way for communities going forward. Uh, so perhaps that's a good prompt for the panel to reflect on our responsibilities there, uh, which I think will come under the spotlight as we go forward because there will be inquiries, commissions around incidents and accidents and fatalities in this space. Mm. It is a, perhaps the most significant challenge. I could imagine conferences next year and, and thereafter being on ethics, liability and responsibility of built environment practitioners mm. uh, 
And it's amazing to see Kundal's commitment around net zero. It's fantastic around the carbon agenda. I think the next agenda is actually going to be around uh, commitment by public sector corporations and public sector around designing uh, in better places and actually refusing contracts, refusing development applications when they are obviously in harm's way of sea level rise, of cyclone pathways, of fire risk, bushfire risk. And, uh, you know, there's a super interesting conversation and also an imperative to have that conversation for the well-being of our communities into the future. So tie that one off for you. (laughs) Thanks, Cheryl. Um, I actually had a question coming up about that. Where do we draw the line? You don't have to answer this first, Cheryl. Where do we draw the line in terms of acceptable land use for development? Um, Like you mentioned, there's still development being approved in flood zones or future flood zones. Um, And are we consulting enough with traditional owners regarding where and how this land should be developed? Yeah, clearly there's a line. Um, You know, planning is critical. And I agree, Cheryl, like the design responsibility is significant. And that's why it's across many different levels. Um, You know, the old one in a hundred year flood map or whatever is no longer relevant, hasn't been for quite some time. I was actually personally involved in the Brisbane, a development in Brisbane that was flooded, I think at least three times in three years, more than one in a hundred years. So um, for whatever the previous, but the design that we actually had to adopt, that that was the map we were working against. So that was irrelevant then. Um, So engagement and it's usually logical as well. I think, you know, when you're looking at different, um, there's media reports on different sort of things going on. You go, well, how, how do we allow housing to go there, et cetera? I think it just made me another point that crosses the last two questions is about um, uh, is about the sustainability um, or about actually the involvement that the government has as well as to private enterprise um, in making sure that... Um, that we are designing for various grades uh, of diversity across the spectrum, especially with housing um, particularly, and that there are policies that actually are guided to ensure that, you know, that viability occurs. Because I think the the risks that are evident in the market, obviously with different cost structures, et cetera, make it hard to develop all types of things. And um, there needs to be a better balance so that we're all engaged to... uh, to produce the, the the type of products that actually serve society best. I think um, something else that ties into this is um, insurance. And this comes down to affordability as well. So if you're at the lower, lower socioeconomic end of, of the scale, then perhaps the affordable land is in the riskiest areas and therefore you can't get insurance. And when that one in 100 year event does happen every year or three years or five years, um, just happens, happens, has to happen once and there's your whole livelihood or mm. your savings or whatever it is gone and, and you're now in deeper trouble than what you might have been dealing with before. I think that, I think that also goes into that all urban infill discussion. I think we need to we have that discussion already, especially here, here in Perth, and I know in other places in Australia as well. 
But uh, coming from from Europe, um, it's, it's it's shocking how much space there is in the inner city. I'm living here, three kilometers away from CBD, and we have I don't know five or six huge car sailors. Um, sales places around literally three kilometers from the CBD, which is an incredible amount of space um, where we just show display cars you can buy. I mean, there's no reason why that couldn't be on the ground floor somewhere and we have apartments on top or um, or we build better townhouses or fill in all those places within the city. And that will also um, help with um, financial costs because people spend less money on cars, spend less money on um, transport. Um, it's better community connection so they can engage better with the neighbors, um, etc. There are lots of benefits of really having taking that urban infill discussion serious and not just seeing it as something I don't want to have in my backyard and I don't want to do. Thanks, Madeline. Cheryl, you've got your hand up, I think. Yeah, just off the back of Madeline's uh, uh, introduction around the um, infill, uh, an, an optimistic thought came to mind because um, through the Sustainable Built Environment National Research Centre, uh, Peter Newman over in WA, Madeline, just down the road from you, has been doing a lot of work on transit activated corridors, tax and transit oriented development, TODS. Uh, but, you know, this the, the opportunity for us to create equity uh, for our um, communities as we wrestle into a decade that's at least I think today was announced but per capita recession but you know we're staring at the potential for a much broader definition of recession going forward these ideas around stacking um, built environment closer together so we have easier access to things and make and things that make us comfortable just makes so much sense and the electrification of our, um, our transport fleet including trackless trams and things that don't require so much physical infrastructure to install making the most of um, satellite technology and lidar systems you know technology fortunately uh, is keeping pace with the amount of change with our social responsibilities and environments so that we can actually make use of that. So I'm I'm actually really excited about the potential and I see it happening across government and private sector where the incentives are lining up for developers to actually do mixed use around uh, nodes that are reasonably easy to install with a trackless tram or whatever the, the technology might be that doesn't require a, an enormous amount of digging up and putting down but actually relies on GPS, LiDAR and some smart um, transit vehicles that are easy to get on and off of. Well, there you have a really nice way to do what Amory Lovins from the Rocky Mountain Institute talks about all the time, which is tunnelling through the cost barrier. So you usually have these cost impediments, but by switching out your technology, all of a sudden you've just tunnelled through that and made it uh, much more possible for our community uh, of all sorts of different persuasions and cap capabilities to have satisfaction in life as we go forward. So I think that's built environment, um, you know, good news days. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, so I guess moving on to the built environment and, and buildings in particular, um, we seem to have a two-part challenge. So we've got so many existing buildings which have high emissions and are not well adapted to climate resilience. And yet the industry is still not designing every new building to be net zero carbon and resilient to climate. So I guess starting with existing assets, how can we retrofit existing assets for resilience? Um, 
And how can we sell that value proposition as part of the process? Maybe, Julian, do you want to start with this one? Oh, yes, very happy to start this one. What I like. So, yeah, new new buildings are fantastic. They're great. They're wonderful. They're wonderful to work on. But but actually, frankly, the refurbishment projects are actually more challenging and more interesting uh, and really do rely on bringing together the best collaborative effort of all of those involved because you have more constraints. You have greater opportunities, but more constraints. And you can put those assets together in a different way. We, we have all the technology. We know all the things we need to do to get those buildings assets to be more efficient and effective. We, you know, we're not lacking in technology for that. We can build fantastically high efficient buildings if we really put our minds to it. But the, the interesting challenge is how you put those together as a value proposition and how you afford to do them. And, you know, sometimes you might need to add a couple of flaws on them to kind of bring some more value. And, and, you know, we've done some really interesting repositioning projects which have, you know, transformed the building into something that people want to be in. Um, so, you know, you take a distressed, empty building, you you may reskin it, you resurface it, you make it super efficient, you make it, you know, increase the daylight in it trip facilities and then you've got tenants who want to come in there and then you know that's a that's a great building because it's now got people in it paying rent paying for that asset adding that value and you know if you can get a couple of extra floors and there's a little bit more value in there because investors are looking for value they're looking for that return and so we need to sort of free up i think uh, some of those planning requirements on re on on repositioning of assets to allow developers and investors to get a little bit more extra for their effort uh, because it's harder it takes more effort um, but it's much better for our cities because it, it it uses all that existing infrastructure it puts the people where you've got your transport infrastructure already rather than building something else somewhere that then needs to be connected in so you know i'm a i'm a super fan of of, of redoing buildings re, you know resilient refit fantastic uh, Julian, I might just add to that. Um, I think we we um, we obviously GPT we create new buildings in in a lot of cases, but I think largely uh, the customer interest in new buildings, which definitely has been, I think there's a flight to quality and flight to new at the moment, especially. But that is about being green and being you know having the most efficient buildings. So from mm-hmm. a from a workplace point of view, but largely the market has or the industry, I guess, hasn't done perhaps as much in the um, working on reuse and rejuvenation of existing buildings as they could have. Now, I think with actually um, Green Star ratings and things like that, that has improved a lot. One of our good examples recently was the redevelopment of Queen and Collins in Melbourne, the old ANZ it was, you know, office for, uh, for, for almost 100 years or so. Um, that has achieved a six green star rating, though, as a rejuvenated or redeveloped building. We spent a significant amount on making sure that building was um, the highest environmental standard it could be. But equally, also, what, what's fantastic about buildings like that, as you say, is the character and the quality of space that's created with existing heritage fabric, especially, and that the market, I think, with the right qualities achieved and, and, and ratings and targets achieved that the, the market is all over it and the customers have um, they, at least in that case proved that they, they really love the building I think there's a an interesting dynamic here again I'll throw on a theoretical lens but um, when we talk about existing buildings where we've got a big focus on efficiency and uh, I mean we've still got so far to go with efficiency of buildings um, but in the in the frame of this, discussion, 
uh, efficiency is actually the, the enemy of resilience. When you make something more efficient, um, you take away the functions it doesn't need to do and you get it to do just the functions you want it to do as well as possible. Whereas resilience, we're aiming for diversity and, and multiple uses and redundancies and all the things that we need in case something should go wrong. So when we make something more efficient, we if something changes, then it becomes more problematic. So there's this, I think the next stage of efficiency is working out where's this balance going to be between um, get, making things as efficient as possible, but also building in resilience. So over time, that efficiency is not a liability, but um, some sort of benefit. Thanks, Phil. I guess following on from that, what what are some of the key resilience strategies that the City of Perth is considering um, or implementing? We, we, we're definitely scratching our heads about, um, I think like every other city, how, how do we get our building stock uh, ready for the future? And um, I, I don't have straight answers for that yet. If someone else has answers, I'd love to hear them. But we know that about 80% of the building stock that exists today is still going to be there in 2050. It all needs to be net zero, but it also needs to be capable of withstanding what we know is coming in terms of climate shocks and also the the social change that's going to come with, with climate change. Um, so no straight answers. We're, we're on the beginning of our journey. We're, we've, we've grants for residential strata apartments. We're starting there in the city, in the city of Perth. But um, we definitely have a long way to go. And I, I think if we can all collaborate, cities can collaborate together with um, some of the really talented people like those on the panel, um, maybe we can come up with an, some answers. Thanks, Phil. Um, and what about, what about GPT, Jamie? What are the, some of the main mitigation measures that you consider in your office commercial office portfolio or other assets? Well, maybe just just on um, I guess Phil's um, thoughts there. The it's, it's it's an interesting. I think there's a lot of different. I a lot of there's a lot of different infrastructure obviously in our cities, and um, we have to design for all sorts of all sorts of things. I think. Um, some of it is about adaptability and flexibility because I think with, I mean, workplaces had to be very flexible, you know, more recently and is constantly, you know, obviously in a big state of change at the moment. But having, um, you know, for a safe flood events is an interesting one. Um, there's certainly the systems and protection measures that buildings need to have for dealing with flood. But equally, there is the community, um, you know, refuge requirements and things like that that a building can also serve to to deal with uh, flood. So there's sort of a community aspect to it as well as just a technical aspect to it. I think, um, so I think when the, from a design point of view, getting your cities right and thinking about the planning, I mean, even having substations and switchboards and those sort of things above ground, which wasn't actually what I think the, actually, if you, if you met the briefs of, you know, largely, largely the energy providers, they were not to do things like that because they needed to be easily accessible. But but in reality, you need them above and away from uh, from harm, obviously, in the case of some kind of um, flood event. So there's a lot of design and engineering that goes into, I think, all aspects of the building to get that right. Uh, from a mitigation point of view, um, we look at things in, I guess, two fundamental ways. One is um, transitional and uh, the other is, is, is physical. 
in the, in the transitional sense, it's about demand side flexibility and managing, you know, this process of non-renewable um, non-renewable power through to renewable energy sources and going forward, and also being able to manage our buildings very proactively in order to manage demand. And so when demand for um, we think is going to peak for the community broadly, we will look to lower our demand and impact. And therefore, that's therefore making buildings and as a, as a leader in the industry to make our buildings more efficient so that we can actually manage that to serve the broader uh, community better um, at times of peak load. And then the physical is about actually, as as Phil said there as well, about the redundancy, managing redundancy, efficiency and flexibility. So there's a lot of different things going on there, um, but also making them useful for society. Um, so we need buildings to be really quite unbreakable, I guess, and good design takes a lot more effort, I think, than than even just you know general yeah. planning for a building and um, longevity is really important as a, an investor and long-term owner, but flexibility is really important to make sure these buildings are usable and therefore sustainable long-term. Um, we uh, we do just from a very detail, I guess from a detail point of view, there's the things we do about electrification. If electrification isn't possible in um, in a particular part of the city, we need we we currently designing to make sure it's got future capacity and capability of turning that on. Some of these things do cost a bit upfront, but that's, um, I think it's about really a long-term view and making sure the cost is um, uh, sustainable going forward. So we have dual feeds for um, power and uh, and water and things like that. We also have um, uh, infrastructure where we're planning for, say, the buildings to be used as batteries for, for the community going forward. Um, one other measure that we've done in one of our buildings um, at uh, uh, Parramatta, 32 Smith Street, Parramatta is where the car parking levels we see as something that will diminish over time, especially in the CBD when the infrastructure like the metro and the new, you know, the new uh, significant infrastructure that's going into Parramatta comes in, that those floors can be converted to other spaces. And so they've been built at floor heights that make them convertible from, from car parks to office space or to other types of spaces. So there's a lot of different aspects of things that we do to mitigate and make our buildings more resilient other than just, you know, the um, backup power generation, et cetera, that is often done. Thanks, Jamie. <clears throat> um, and Cheryl, how does resilience fit into major events like um, the Brisbane Olympics? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Hannah. <laughs> Proud Mianjin Brisbane uh, resident and looking forward to 2032 with a little bit <clears throat> of hesitation around the built-in heat load, cyclone load, storm surge load and all those other good things that as um, built environment practitioners, we just have to build into our infrastructure herein. So super interesting, uh, declare a personal bias at Griffith Uni, we're heavy into the Olympics being a legacy opportunity. So we actually have a whole section of the university dedicated working with Committee for Brisbane, Carolyn Rio and team uh, around what can we do in harnessing that energy around Olympics to make sure that our communities along the uh, Queensland um, coast. We've got, it's not just Southeast Queensland, it's actually the whole of Queensland that's involved in the Olympics and to make sure that that infrastructure, uh, as Jamie and uh, Phil have been alluding to, uh, 
actually all the panel has around building in these um, other aspects of our um, uh, spaces to be there for refuge, for cooling purposes, for retreats amidst really hot urban landscapes. I have a PhD candidate, um, Anne's Francis, and she's uh, two thirds of the way through looking at environmentally environmental sustainability of stadium. Um, buildings. You think, oh, hasn't that been done? Water, waste, energy. It has, except what she's been looking at is the design journey in stadiums and what it means to do environmental sustainability from this resilience perspective. And what she's found, uh, which, you know, will be out shortly and please feel free to be in contact if interested, is that there's one of the key findings is the disjoint. We always talk about perverse incentives, things that work for someone but not for someone else. And we've long talked about owner-occupier uh, versus someone who builds and then sells to someone else and how that doesn't work in terms of building in these long-term benefits for the occupier. You know, we build cheap, sell, and then the occupier lives with those impacts for like 30 years. Well, what we're finding with stadiums is there's a really great initial vision, mission, gets taken all the way through to design, build, maintain, even can get handed over to the facilities management. Great, we're doing that better than we were. But then the guests arrive. And when we all know when a guest arrives for a party, they don't necessarily know how to take care of the building that they occupy or the restaurant they walk into. Well, for a stadium, when an event turns up, whether it's a gig for a music festival or whether it's Olympic sport or whether it's disaster response in terms of becoming an evacuation centre or a place um, of last resort in some cases, there's not the handover of knowledge around how that built asset works. And so the ability for that asset to perform according to design is not necessarily met, whether that's energy, water, waste, materials, but also its ability to be fit for purpose for those end users. So engaging with advertising companies, engaging with um, sponsors, engaging with the athletes themselves uh, and engaging with the public to be able to respect these assets and use them well uh, during Olympics and then you, during other uses as well is a real behaviour change opportunity for us all to be stewards of our communal assets. So as taxpayers, we actually need to be stewards of our bridges, of our uh, stadiums, of our public spaces. And I'm really looking forward to having that conversation because then we bring into possibility the opportunity for outdoor cooling spaces and food gardens that our people of place, of Mianjin, of wherever it might be, actually take care of place uh, more than we have in the past as disconnected living in buildings 90% of the time, human beings who use outdoors to get from one place to the other but are not necessarily connected to place as we travel through those to commute. So I'm, I'm super excited about the Olympics as being an opportunity to have a real resilience conversation in dealing with the, um, avoiding the disasters as they occur in and around Olympics or at least recovering quickly and building our muscles to be part of place even more as part of that journey. Awesome. <clears throat> Thanks, Cheryl. Um, I suppose, Julian, is there anything you'd like to add about designing resilience for, for new buildings? We talked about existing before. Yeah, I think uh, one of the important aspects of design and something I guess I've learned from all the different regions around the world I've put buildings into and, you know, hot, cold, wet, dry, all these sorts of things, places with no power, places with lots of power. You know, is there actually, there's quite a lot you can do 
with the building itself to actually make it more resilient to shocks. Um, you know, we can rely on too much technology and make these buildings need all that technology in order to keep comfortable. But that's not particularly good from a resilience point of view, because when one of those things fails, you know, you're you're susceptible to whatever impacts you get. You know, we can make buildings, you know, by just thinking about them more passively, just at that fundamental passive level, um, you know, thermal mass, good control of sunlight, all those sorts of things make that building more resilient in the event of something going wrong, a bit of power failure for a few hours. Suddenly everybody's not having to get out because it's too hot. And you know, and we we can do all of that. We can make all those things happen. We've got to find the right balance between that and the kind of maybe the heaviness that some of that ends up with versus the glassy flossiness of other things maybe. So it is a design decision as to how robust to make that baseline building and then and you know and when you think about a net zero trajectory what we're really doing is building a, you know a very robust passive building before we start applying all the technologies and the extra things and if you do that journey as that's step number 1 actually if you go around the dial you end up with a very very carbon conscious building because it's actually working really, really hard just on its own without all the other pieces. And then all the other pieces are much less than they need anyway. So the whole thing is kind of self um self-driving towards a low carbon outcome. So I think I think we can do a lot more in that space. And I think we certainly have the science and and the physics and the technology behind it to do it. Um, we just need to do it more often and get used to what those buildings might look like and what the process is and the, the roles that everybody needs to play and how the clients need to then see that that as value and how we communicate that and sell that and you know it becomes part of that design process rather than just being a one-off unusual uh, sort of thing. Perhaps to just Thanks. add to that, um, Hannah, if I can, um, I, I think when you actually when you actually um, have ambitious, well, ambitious, I think it's actually in a way there's a obviously a spectrum of those, but I think an ambitious target of a, say a, a um, zero uh, upfront embodied carbon building, for example, and what it does, um, which we're doing at 51 Flinders, that was that's our goal. So that unfortunately does require offsets to a, at a point in time, but. Um, uh, the process drives a um, a whole um, excitement in a way through the whole life uh, through throughout the supply chain is what I was going to say. Um, it it actually you know opportunities come up that we haven't thought of, um, and so I think it goes to what I was saying earlier about it's extra effort. I, even though I would have said a lot of our us the designers and uh, developers and are uh, doing a lot of work in this space, but the extra effort. Is really about almost that cultural, um, yeah, the cultural, well, it's leadership and then culturally getting a response from all the way down mm. through the line so that you actually get interesting ideas and innovations and um, you get all sorts of products thrown up. What does this work? Does that work? How can we, you know, do this? And I think it's, um, it's quite an exciting thing for the whole team as well. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of levels of, um, of positivity that come out of an effort by driving it through a very strong um, ambition at the start. Thanks, Jamie. Finally, for all of our panellists, if you could do one thing tomorrow to solve this problem of resilience in the built environment, what would it be? I know it's a commonly asked question, but I think it's a good one. Um, why don't we start with Julian? Excellent. I, I found it difficult to just have one thing, actually, but I did have two things. I'll quickly do two things. They are kind of connected. I, I think... Um, 
you know, fundamentally, we've got to get a better balance around controlling CO2 levels, controlling climate change. And I think the key for me is, you know, reducing the extraction of fossil fuels. That's the piece we haven't really tackled. There's a demand there that's just not abating at all, and it's just continuing away. Uh, and then very quickly, the second piece, I'm a, I'm a certified passive house designer, and I'd like us to see design all buildings, new buildings, existing buildings, to standards like that, because it fundamentally changes the energy required of those buildings and the quality of those buildings and the internal environment of those buildings. Uh, and it's deliverable, known, and there's lots, thousands of examples of buildings at that standard around the globe. And we could do that tomorrow um, and just get on with it. Thanks, Julian. Phil? Uh, well, yeah, just plugging away what I'm what I'm doing now. But one of our um, we've got this sustainability strategy, a ten year sustainability strategy, and we're one of the things in that is to really embed sustainability across the organisation. So we've got some really expert experts in planning and economic development and community development. So instead of just five sustainability officers, we can have seven hundred which would be all of our staff doing sustainability and resilience and um, building the city that way. So, yeah. Thanks, Phil. Excellent. Jamie? Well, I think it goes maybe to my last point. I think it's about having ambitious. So the one thing is having an ambitious target. Uh, maybe a good example, I think, is, also, um, is a GPT one, which is the GPT Wholesale Office Fund had... I think it like relative target discussions around operating um, operating carbon neutral uh, from I think 2024 or 25 originally, and maybe it was 2030 at the start. But ultimately, our fund manager declared that they wanted to do it by 2020, and that was achieved 100% from the wholesale office fund at GPT by 2020, and. Um, I think the same now goes to upfront embodied carbon, and obviously as a as a as a way in which um, we've got to reduce that as much as possible. Uh, we have also declared all developments to be upfront in embodied carbon neutral uh, from that are created from here, and um, and it's really just about setting those. And I think when you actually think of this target, you've got to then go, oh, is that good enough, really? And it's probably way ahead of that, which I think is uh, what that is a good example of. It's all about targets. Thanks, Jamie. Madeline? Yeah, I've been uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I've been thinking about this on a more um, sort of when, when we talk about systems and systems change. And um, we also talked a lot about traditional owners. We talked about diversity and inclusion. And I think building resilience and also tackling climate change is such a group effort as a societal effort and really the, some of the the, the, the uh, actions of course are the same for um, phasing out fossil fuels setting targets absolutely agree with that but probably um, everyone can do their little bit and can come up with their own ideas what to do about it and so my <laughs> advice would be um, to just get out of the car and walk, walk around, walk around the neighborhood, walk around some bushland and really feel that connection to the land, feel the connection to nature. I mean, we live in such an amazingly beautiful place and uh, really get that sense of place. And um, and I think that will also trigger the, the brain capsules and, and what then every individual and in their own role can do next. So. 
Beautiful. Thanks, Madeline. And finally, Cheryl. I'm so glad you, the panel said what they've said because then I can just say my point and um, agree with all the others as well. I think I have a personal um, confessed passion for data, Hannah. And so my one thing uh, we have in Queensland in particular, we have a strong philosophy of build back better uh, and build back better in better places in that, you know, not in harm's way conversation from before. Mm. To do that, we actually have to use data better. And what a brilliant place to have that conversation here because it's about BIM, it's about uh, CAD, it's about um, improved design uh, feedback systems around everything from embodied carbon to floor heights of future dwellings and how that relates to future flood levels. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the infrastructure uh, Sustainability Council of Australia and also Green Building Council of Australia, ISCA or ISC these days, and GBCA, uh, because in the vertical build and in the supporting um, horizontal build space, Australia is doing so much uh, as a, a global leader in being able to connect data to improve decision making and decision support. And uh, exactly as you said, um, panel, I think that um, setting targets, Jamie, and then having the data to inform so you can really evaluate properly whether you're there or not. If we're not, so what? Well, we do better. At least we know where we're tracking in relation to. So evaluation, said as an academic at heart, evaluation is so important. Use data better would be my one thing, which would enable us to track and evaluate how we're going. So we can be confident when we tell the stories about true zero carbon and so forth. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to thank our fantastic panel very much for joining us and our audience for joining us. This is a podcast by Kundal. We're a carbon neutral business committed to achieving zero carbon design on all our projects by 2030. To work with us and help us achieve our goals, visit kundal.com.